I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol, it doesn't move me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you Some like the bop type refrain I'm sure that if I heard even one riff Twit to bore me terrifically too Yet I get a kick out of you The great Frank Sinatra uh, There is nobody in history that has better stories or more stories about Frank Sinatra than Tom Dreesen. And I mean nobody, including those that happen to have the last name Sinatra. Um, if you've heard Tom Dreesen on this show before or seen him perform or seen him on television, you know what a delight he is and what a treat he is. If you're not familiar with Tom Dreesen, he is a legendary stand-up uh, comedian, an actor, somebody that uh, was on tour as Frank Sinatra's opening act for about 13 years. And now he's the author of a wonderful new book, which, as busy as I was this weekend, I could not put down. It's called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. And uh, I'm thrilled he's agreed to uh, stay up late with us this evening. Tom, thanks so much for joining me on the radio again. No, Frank, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you for that introduction. That was very nice. Thank you so much. Well, it has the the added virtue of being true. Now, uh, Tom, I've said, and I want to talk about some of the stories that you focus on uh, in the book, but I've said repeatedly that there are two things that are very difficult in life. One is to achieve any level of success as a performer or an entertainer, but the thing that's next to impossible is to do it for any substantial length of time, and yet you've been in a position where you've been in in show business and having people want to see you for 50-plus years. What's the key to your longevity, Tom? Uh, this is We live in an era where tastes change so quickly. You can measure the, uh, the, the career span of the average performer with an hourglass, and here you are, more than a half century later, still doing your thing. Well, you know, first of all, I love making people laugh. Uh, I wrote a poem years ago that I'm not going to do for you, but it was called The Sound of Laughter. And the first line is, as far back as I can remember, or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. And so uh, I've always enjoyed making people laugh. I've always enjoyed he- hearing the sound of laughter. And and uh, and I worked hard at it. I really worked hard at it to, to make it. And I realized that you know, you have to keep coming up with new material. You have to keep reinventing yourself, you know, and uh, and, and so I, I did that. I, 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 as you pointed out, I, the shows I did, but I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. But every time you did The Tonight Show, you had to keep, you had to come up with a new mm. six-minute routine. So Johnny didn't want two guys going to bar jokes. He wanted, <laughs> you know, original monologues. So I did that. And then we're over. 50 appearances on Letterman and, and, and all around the country. So keep coming up with new material and, uh, and keeping yourself fresh. And, and yet, no matter where I was, no matter how hardship my life was, if I could get up on a stage somewhere and make people laugh, it was just uh, the joys of, you know, the, the highest of highs, you know. Uh, what made you want to be a comedian? Was it just that love of laughter and the love of hearing people laugh, the love of making people laugh? Yeah, but also it was, came totally by surprise. 
I, w- I came out. I came out of the service. I got married. I had a wife and three kids. I, uh, I was I went back to Chicago, Harvey, Illinois, my hometown, a suburb on the south side of Chicago, and and I got into the workforce. I worked one job after, and I was always a bartender part time. But I would work construction, and I work uh, you know pouring sidewalks and basements as a laborer. Then I uh, was a, a photographer, and then I was a private detective at one time. I I uh, worked on a loading dock. I became a teamster, and then later <laughs> dropped my card, and I I was now the foreman of all these teamsters, and and, and eventually sold life insurance. But I was not happy with any of these things, and I ended up joining a civic group called the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce in those days, and they worked on community projects and trying to make the community a better place to live, and and uh, by tackling the problems of the community and their. Therefore, you learned how to serve on a committee, chair a committee. You learned how to conduct meetings, Robert's Rules of Order. And in and, and that interim, I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor, a concept I had. Teaching, they weren't teaching drug education in those days at a college or a high school level, let alone at an eighth grade level. And that's where I wanted to get them before they went into high school. Working with me on the project was a young black man named Tim Reed. He joined the JCs. He, he was from Norfolk, Virginia. E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep, and he joined the JCs. That very first night I was proposing the project, uh, he came up and wanted to work with me on the on the program. We rehearsed it, went into the classrooms. The program became a big success. We played a lot of music, but we made we joked off of one another. And the students were black and white like we were, so they, they took to us right away. One day, a little eighth-grade girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because mm. no one had ever done that before. So we started writing what we thought was material. There were no comedy clubs in those days, so we worked all black clubs in the north and the south, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, you know, the 20 Grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Sugar Shack in Boston. The Club Harlem in Atlantic City you write about? Yeah, Club Harlem. And then one day, a little, uh, you know, one day, uh, the first time I ever went on stage with Tim, something I had written got a laugh. And it was like one of those B movies where the dark clouds open up and a sun burst through, and my whole being went, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a comedian. And and I just got so dedicated and paid dues. As you know, you read the book. I paid a lot of dues, and uh, and, and I'm still standing, you know. Uh, no, well, that's outstanding. And again, if people just tune in, we're talking with Tom Dreesen. You can check out his book, Still Standing. There are some great stories about Johnny Carson, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. But the most interesting stories are about Tom and uh, his adventures in comedy, entertainment, and life. Uh, talk to me about The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, your first appearance on with Carson, and what that meant for your career. It seems like that was sort of a watershed moment for you, very much a game changer. No question about it. In 1979, Frank, wherever you – or 1975, uh, the team split up in 1975. In 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? <laughs> if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one, but you weren't one now. So to get on that show was the key. And I got out here to the West Coast. I was broke. As you know, you read the book. I ended up sleeping in a car. I was hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard and begging to work for free at the comedy store. And I finally got on there. And after about six months, I got the Tonight Show to come and see me. And now it's time to go to the Tonight Show. And, and you're all excited because Freddie Prince did one appearance on the Tonight Show and the next day got a sitcom. So everybody knew it, it would launch your career. Twenty six and a half million people watched that show in those days, you know, every night. 
So now I get there. They put me in makeup. They take me up to the, the dressing room, and then they bring me down to the green room, and you're getting ready to go on. And they came in and said, I'm sorry. We ran out of time. You have to come back next week. So I came back the next week, got in makeup, up the dressing room, down to the green room. They came and said, we ran out of time again. They did this to me three times in a row. And now they... The fourth time, I'm in makeup, and Fred DeCordova, the producer, came in, and he said, I got some bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so you get a lump in your throat the size of a grapefruit. Now they come and get me, and they put me behind that curtain. Carol Burnett was on the show that night, uh, and uh, along with Bert Convey. And anyhow, Bert was singing the song, and he said, you follow this song. And they went to commercial break. And you're standing behind that curtain, and the coordinator leaves you alone, and now you're alone, and the, the, all everything that you work for all your life. It's like that song, that one moment in time song, when, when all of my dreams are a heartbeat away, and the answers are all up to me. When you go through that curtain, if you could score here tonight, all your, you know, all, all of your dreams are just a heartbeat away. So now Doc Severinsen's playing because they're in commercial break, and then the music stops, and we're coming back live, and the curtain starts to light up. <laughs> And yeah, and and you're going, oh God, what's that first line? What was that first line I was going to do? Because not only the, the, all the talent coordinators, the Vegas buyers, the, you know, corporate people, agents, managers watch that show. But my mother had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois, watch it. Mm. So if I bomb, I couldn't even go back home. You know. You so. know. Speaking of growing up in in Illinois, um, you don't think it's an accident that so many funny people, you, you, Carson, Letterman all came from the Midwest. What do you think it is about the Midwest that leads to a, a unique sense of humor? I've talk show host, uh, the, the, the great, the, the, they survive longer, we're from the Midwest. When you think about it, I mean, Johnny Carson from, was from the Midwest. I mean, uh, uh, I, 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 Dick Cavett? Dick Cavett was from the Midwest. Uh, Phil Donahue was from the Midwest. Um, David Letterman's from the Midwest. Uh, I think that that personality wears well over the years. Hmm. And Johnny had this incredible skill that when he walked out, he was the star. When he did his monologue, he was the star. And then he went and did some things with Edge, and he was the star. And then after that, you were the star. I don't care if you were an old lady, 102 years old from uh, Keokuk, Iowa, or if you were Gregory Peck. You were the star, you know, and Johnny had a great way of like he invited you into his home and and, uh, and had that Midwestern style that lasted a long, long time. You know, Is there any show now where you could instantly become a celebrity with one appearance like you could with uh, Johnny Carson back in the day? I don't think there is. Well, the, the, you know, these these um, uh, uh, America's Got Talent shows, mm -hmm. somebody could launch off of that. But here's the problem with that. Somebody who can sing a real good song or something like that, we trained in clubs and training and training and training. When the, when the day came that you were launched on national TV, you were able to go out into the marketplace and perform. A lot of times these people don't have an act. They're, they're talented, mm. but they, they haven't got, you know, but there are some that have launched through, and that might be the only place. There is no talk show Today, I think you could do 20 Tonight shows, and, and I don't think, you know. I think you're right. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're exactly right. Uh, n now, there's been so much discussed about Johnny uh, being uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of a hermit off air. And um, uh, it seems like a lot of people really didn't get to know the private side of Carson. Did you have much of a relationship with him off air? Not very. He was very shy. Socially. I, as I said, I did 60, 61 appearances on the Tonight Show, and people say, "What was Johnny like?" I said, "I don't know." <laughs> you know, but but I did see him socially several times. And 
especially at Sinatra's home, when I was touring with Frank, Frank would have a, a party sometimes out in Malibu, and Johnny lived out there, and Johnny would come in, and I'd, I'd, he'd engage in conversation with me. He was really shy publicly, unless he had a couple of drinks, and then then uh, then he could be a little bit <laughs> he'd get a little bit raucous raucous once in a while. You know? You, you know, you spend a little bit of time in the book talking about your time. Obviously, you get asked about Frank Sinatra all the time, and I'm going to ask you about Sinatra in a, in a second, but you spend some time talking about your time uh, as an opening act for Sammy Davis Jr. What was that like as a performer, and what was what was what was Sammy like as a person? Well, when I after I did my first appearance on the Tonight Show, I started doing all these talk shows. You know, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train. I was the only white comedian to ever do Soul Train. I was doing American Bandstand, all these shows. But there was a show called Sammy and Company, where Sammy Davis had a talk show out of Lake Tahoe, out of Harris, and. I, I did that show, and I did a whole bunch of routines about growing up in, in an all-black neighborhood where I grew up at and playing basketball on an all-black basketball team and, and all those kind of routines, and Sammy loved it. And he took me on the road with him. And it, it, to sit in the wings, and I was always a fan, but to sit in the wings night after night after my show and watch this incredible performer, was he like going to school, show business 101. He could sing as good as anybody out there. Frank Sinatra said, I never heard Sammy hit a bad note. He could dance better than anybody out there. He could do comedy as good as any comedian. He could do impressions better than any comedian, and uh, any impressionist I ever saw. He could play the piano. He could play the drums. He could uh, play the trumpet. Uh, and to watch him night after night take command of that stage and take command of that audience was fascinating for me. And then he was a wonderful guy to me. He would teach me things and talk to me about show business and, and encourage me. And, and, uh, he, he was just a lot of fun to be around. And we stayed friends till the day he died. I went to the funeral, his funeral with Frank and Dean. And, uh, and, uh, I went to a private wake, uh, the night before there was only like eight people there and they invited me to that. And, and, uh, he was just terrific. He was just a great, a great entertainer who, what bothers me the most is when young people today, young comedians, if they do something about Sammy, they do a poor impression of him uh-huh. and they, they mock him or something. This the, He was the Jackie Robinson of show business. He he tore down the, the walls for a lot of the inter, black entertainers that followed him. You know, He, he was a, just a real good, good person. Early on in your time uh, touring with Frank, you describe, I think it was only a couple of months in, you describe your first time going to Sinatra's home in Palm Springs. Tell folks about what that experience was like the first time you were at Sinatra's home. Well, first of all, it's a compound, you know, and it's, mm. it's all gated all the way around. It's, it's walls all the way around it. And once you got past the security gate, you went inside the security gate, there was a, a whole new world. It was his world, you know. He had There was a main house where he stayed, but there were bungalows all along the outer perimeters named after his songs. Um, Tender Trap, My Way, Strangers in a Night, you know, all these named after his songs in New York, New York, you know. And uh, the first time I went to his home, I toured with him six months. And he asked me to come down and stay with him. And I went down there. And, you know, and, and he, his house guests were Gregory Peck and his wife, Veronique, Kirk <laughs> Douglas and his wife, Anne, Jack Lemon and his wife, Felicia, uh, Robert Wagner and Jill St. John, Clint Eastwood and whoever he was dating at the time, and <laughs> and Angie Dickinson. And th- these were people I saw in the movies when I was a little boy in Harvey, Illinois. And now I'm in a room with them. And, and the, they, they, they would 
treat me like a like an equal, which of course I was not. But they would ask me, "Oh, Tommy, tell me about stand up comedy. How did you get interested in that?" And they were they were just marvelous people, you know. Uh, and it was and, and once you were inside that world there in that compound with Frank, um, you know, you wanted for nothing. You wanted for nothing. You know, you could have breakfast in your bed at the bungalow. He had staff, and everybody would treat you at lunchtime around the tennis courts. In the evenings, Frank would uh, either Frank would take us all out to dinner somewhere, or they would eat there. And Frank would go in the kitchen and help with the sauce. And we, we call it the gravy, you know, the old timers. But he, it was, it was just. And then then they would have a few drinks, and the women would go to bed early. And and, the, and Frank stayed up till dawn. He never went to bed till the sun came up. And you'd sit around and talk with all these you know interesting people and it could be it was the ambassador from italy would be staying there isaac wow. stern you know it'd be uh alan shepherd the first man in space and on the fifth lunar mission landed on the moon very interesting conversations you know oh i i can imagine there's always been a lot of uh, acrimony among certain comedians who get angry with other performers stealing their material as a comic what can you really do if somebody's going to steal your material, you can't really copyright a, a joke, can you? No, you can't. You can't do anything. You know, I, I always tell young comedians today, they can't steal your delivery and they can't steal your timing. Mm. But it's, it's, it hurts when somebody, especially original material, in the day, in, in my day, if somebody went on national television and did your joke, it's their joke. What could you do? Mm. You know, that, that, that the, sometimes they would, they, they wouldn't steal from a renowned comedian. They would go to like the comedy store and stuff and they would steal from these young comedians that were up and coming, you know, and there's nothing you can do. And, and uh, you know, uh, like I say, they can't steal your delivery, your personality, your timing, you know, and just keep writing new material, you know. And after a while, today, there were no comedy clubs when I started out. There were none. Today, there's like 550 <laughs> across the land, you know. Um, well, that's so, what you write about. You did a lot of your performing at supper clubs uh, in those days. And, uh, you know, you sp- speak a little bit about your time performing at the comedy store uh, getting to perform among a lot of terrific comedians including uh, Jay Leno what was Jay Leno like as a stand up back in the late 70s and and how does how did his act back then differ at all from the Jay Leno that we see on television or doing stand up these days Jay Jay I met him when I was with the comedy team we were working the Boston Playboy circuit Tim Reed and I worked the Playboy circuit we were working the Boston club and a friend of mine a comedian Mike Premager brought uh Jay Leno to our show he had been in the business about about 4 months and that's when I first met him uh and uh and so I've known him all those years he was an outstanding and is an outstanding stand-up comedian you know when i'd go on stage every night with all these unknown comedians at the comedy store it'd be jay leno david letterman robin williams gallagher michael keaton the girl waiting tables was deborah winger you know these are all unknowns Mm. at that time you know but it was jay when all of us would be outside or something when jay would go on we'd all go back inside and watch him because he was a master stand-up comedian when you see jay doing the monologues on the tonight show they're funny and everything but those are jokes that were written that day you know, and, and his writers would write all those jokes, and he'd have to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, and, and then go out and do them off, you know, sometimes off of a cue card. And so the monologues are funny, but when you saw Jay, you see Jay live, even to this day, he could go up and do two solid hours, two hours. And most comedians would tell you, an hour's enough. But Jay could do two hours, and you'd be enthralled throughout the whole two hours. Very original and funny stuff, great delivery, you know.
Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it really, you know, he, he has a great reputation as a stand-up, but he doesn't seem to be regarded uh, as highly by other comedians as somebody like a Letterman or a Carson. What, what do you think that's about? Well, you know, uh, Jay, you know, Dave um, really is not, Dave never liked stand-up comedy. That's mm-hmm. why when Jay was on hosting The Tonight Show, he on weekends he was working in Vegas and all around the country. David was offered huge sums of money to go in Atlantic City and in Vegas, and he he turned it down. He saw himself more as a broadcaster, you know. Um, I don't. I, I I think it's all subjective, mm. you know. The one thing that 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 you know sometimes. If you watch in Jay, you want to know who the guest was. If you watch Letterman, you didn't care who the guest was. Right, you know, right. Because he was so unpredictable sometimes, you know. Uh, Sinatra was asked uh, a couple of times why he kept you around as his opening act for so long. What did he say? A guy from the New York Times one time, we were at, uh, at uh, Patchy's Restaurant in New York, you know, hanging out. And uh, and uh, anyhow, the guy came up and he said, he said hello to me, but he think he really wanted to meet Frank. I knew the guy. I met the guy once before, but he said to Frank, uh, Frank, why do you keep Tom Dreesen around with you all these years? He said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? And the guy said, yeah, besides the fact he's funny. He said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, and I am, then Tommy's a saloon comedian. By that, I mean we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. Mm-hmm. And I've always treasured that remark because that's what I am. I'm from the neighborhood. I, I was a, a, you know, I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. I was a bartender in the neighborhood bars. You know, I'm, uh, I'm a kid from the neighborhood. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. You know, and Frank was that kind of guy. So we, that's how we connected. You know, he was a. Uh, I thought that was a great. Absolutely, I, I loved, always loved that that quote. Absolutely, yeah, we're talking with Tom Dries, and you can check out his book, Still Standing: uh, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. You can also uh, check out his website. There's a lot of interesting material on there. Uh, but just go to uh, TomDreesen.com. That's D-R-E-E-S-E-N. Or you can just Google Tom Dreesen. It comes right up. You have one funny anecdote in the book. Well, it's chock full of funny anecdotes. But one uh, anecdote that I found quite amusing about the time that you were present for a meeting between Henry Kissinger and Frank Sinatra. Tell folks what happened. <laughs> I, uh, I can't swear on the show, so I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, clean it up as best that. you can. Well, well, you know, you know what it is is, you know, I, we were it was the first year I was touring with Frank, and they were honoring Barbara Sinatra at the uh, Waldorf Astoria in New York. And anyhow, there was all these, and that was my first year touring with them. And at the par- uh, cocktail party before the evening's festivities, Lee Iacocca was the master of ceremonies, and on the dais was me and Dean Martin and um, and Don Rickles and. Uh, uh, other artists, and of course Henry Kissinger. And so at the cocktail party before, Frank is talking to me about a gig we're going to be doing at Garden State Arts Center, and we're talking. And then Kissinger walked up and he said, "To he said, Francis, how are you?" And he said, "Oh, Doctor Kissinger." He said, "This is Tom Dreesen. Tom is a comedian who's been touring with me." And Kissinger like poked me with his fist on the show on my shoulder. He said, "I've seen you on the Johnny Carson show. You're a funny lad." And I thought, "Wow." Henry Kissinger watches it tonight. So it is, but, you know, I'm a kid from the south side of Chicago. That was kind of fascinating that he, you know, for me. So meanwhile, at that moment, Donald Trump, who at that time was in, in uh, you know, hotel business and stuff like that, he started talking to Frank. And Frank's talking to Donald Trump. And I'm alone with Henry Kissinger. Now, I want to say something profound. 
to let him know that, you know, that I, I, I know a little bit about world affairs because I watch Nightline every night, you know. So I said, I said, Dr. Kissinger, this thing about the West Bank, and I was about to ask this question when the band leader, Lee Castle, walked by, and he said to Kissinger, he said, excuse me. He said, Tommy, did you hear about Tony from Milwaukee? The feds busted him. He got two years. <laughs> <laughs> no, Kissinger's looking at me like I'm Al Capone. And, and I, I didn't know what to say to Lee. First of all, I didn't know who he's talking about. So he walked away, and I said to Kissinger, well, you know how them feds are, you know, and, and, and didn't know what else to say. Later, I said to Frank, he said to me, what were you talking to Henry Kissinger about? I said, Frank, you won't believe this. Lee, the band leader, um, you know, walked by and interrupted the conversation and told me Tony from Milwaukee, uh, this guy Tony Maki, and, and uh, you know, I had chased Lee afterward, and I said, Lee, what the hell were you talking about? He said, Tony Maki from, from uh, Milwaukee uh, used to run the Italian Fest. He bribed a judge, and they put him in jail. I said, well, you know, I only met him one time. I was coming off stage, and he handed me a check. I, I didn't know him. He said, well, I thought you'd want to know. I said, didn't you see who I was talking to? You wonder why everybody thinks all <laughs> Italian people are in the mafia. Yeah, I'm talking to Henry Kissinger. So now Frank says to me that night, you know, what were you talking about? And I told him what Lee said. And Frank told me a story he said years before. He was in in um, Syracuse, New York, and in the 40s or something. And he was sitting on the dais with the governor of New York when one of those wise guys walked out of the audience and walked all the way up to the dais before dinner started. And he knelt down between Frank and the governor of New York. And he said to Frank, he said, uh, I don't know if you heard or not, and he said the name Joe Stanetchi or something, got, died last night in the electric chair. And he pointed at, at the, the governor. He said, and this jerk wouldn't pardon him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Leslie, Tom, uh, how are you feeling about the Cubs' chances this season? <laughs> I have a better chance of winning the heavyweight championship <laughs> of the world. <laughs> Uh, the book is, oh. is terrific. Uh, still standing. Um, you, people should check it out. There's some wonderful stories about uh, Tom Dreesen's career and about his uh, relationship with uh, Frank Sinatra, which continued from the time they met uh, to even after Frank uh, passed away. Uh, Tom was a pallbearer at his funeral and for the last 24 years or so has done as good a job as any uh, keeping Frank Sinatra's legacy alive. Tom, it's always a treat to talk with you. I hope we can do this again soon. I do too, Frank. Thank you so much. They can go to Amazon and the book will be at the house in two days. And I appreciate the plug. Thanks so much. Ab and uh, and I hope to talk to you soon, Frank. Absolutely. We'll look forward to that. Tom Dreesen. You know, it's funny. Um, there's this uh, Jerry Seinfeld show, uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. It's, I think it's probably my wife's favorite show. And he does a lot of great interviews with different comedians on there. It would. I've always said that I think it would be great to get Tom Dreesen on that show. As one of the comedians at cars, you know, getting coffee. I don't know. I don't know how they do that. I don't know who's in charge of suggesting uh, guests to Jerry, but I think that would be great. So if uh, anybody wants to reach out to Jerry and suggest that, I, I, I would imagine it, it would be just a fascinating, fascinating series of conversations. Hey, uh, we'll take your calls next. Seven open lines, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.